My name is Chloe, and I will be doing the Bible reading for today. Today's Bible reading is taken from John chapter 19, verses 16 to 42. So that's John chapter 19, verses 16 to 42. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was, for, this was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary. Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. He said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her own, took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not, o not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might, might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. 
So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was closed at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is the word of the Lord. A very, very warm welcome to you all on this Good Friday morning. And if you are new here this morning, may I add to the welcome that Rafa gave you. We are delighted that you are here this morning. You may be a visitor, you may be a guest, and we really are so, so pleased that you could join us on this special Good Friday morning. Before I pray, uh, let me say this morning we're having a look at John 19, and we're looking at verses 16 to 30. So we look at verse 16 to 30, then I'll be opening God's Word again on Sunday morning, and we'll be looking at John 20. So you may want to read that before Sunday morning, and then also Sunday evening, I'll be looking at Matthew 28. So this morning, uh, John 19, Sunday morning, John 20, and Sunday evening, Matthew 28. Father, we thank you for your Word that we've just heard, and we thank you for these images which remind us why Good Friday is good. That Christ came to rescue people like us, sinful people, broken people. We thank you, Lord, that your grace, your mercy is extended even to us today. And we pray that as we study your word and as we look at the cross, that your spirit may work in our hearts and minds and draw us to yourself. Work amongst us, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. Matthew 19, and we'll be looking at verse 16 to 30. In our Western world, especially in Europe, in the UK, and parts of the USA, there's a massive Christophobia People hate Christ. People hate Christianity. They hate the gospel. A British British Airways air hostess was suspended for wearing a simple cross under her uniform. A medical doctor loses his job, suspended from his job, because he wouldn't call a self-identified woman she while he's treating her for prostate cancer. David Seckham, the ex-principal of our Bible college, George Whitfield College, was told by a fellow book club member in Perth, Australia, he said to David, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in Jesus. In fact, I believe that Christianity is evil. Christianity has had an evil influence in our world. Now, we live in a country which has been hugely affected by Christianity, by the church. It's changing But in much of the world, when it comes to Christ and the cross, there's no neutrality. It polarizes people. It's hugely offensive. Even in mainline churches, traditional churches, what we would call liberal churches, where they no longer teach the Bible or the gospel, the cross of Christ is offensive. Listen to the Dean of St. Albans Church of England. I quote, The church's traditional understanding of the cross of Christ is both repulsive and insane. Why should God forgive us through punishing somebody else? It's illogical. 
It makes God sound like a psychopath. The idea of God murdering his son is completely barbaric. It turns Christianity into cosmic child abuse. End of quote. You get the idea. Now, a good question is, why do people... So I've asked myself, why do people hate Christianity? Why do they hate the cross? Why do they hate Jesus? Why do they hate the gospel? And I think the problem is that it exposes us. Is it? it exposes our sin, and we'd rather get rid of our consciousness of sin. It exposes our pride, because it insists that we cannot achieve salvation on our own, and we hate that idea. It exposes our man-made DIY attempts to find meaning in life. Ten steps to be successful. Eight keys to be highly motivated. Pathetic. We hate the cross. The human nature hates the cross because it confronts us with our mortality. It confronts us with our sinfulness, our total inadequacy to look God in the face. It confronts us with the fact that there's, that the only thing of my very own that I contribute to my redemption is my sin from which I need to be redeemed. Isn't that ironic? It confronts us, the cross confronts us that the only thing that I bring is my sin from which I need to be redeemed. Now the choice that I face this morning as a preacher is either to flatter you and tell you that you can save yourself. If you only have enough faith, if you only pray enough, if you only give enough seed money, if you only fast enough, or I can tell you the truth about sin and guilt and judgment and the cross. Here's the choice for all preachers. Either I'm unfaithful to the word and I'm popular to the world, or I'm faithful to the word and I'm unpopular to the world. I don't think I can be faithful and popular at the same time. You've got to make a choice. And you know very well that this church made that choice many, many years ago. Let's have a look at our passage, and it really will be a great help to me if you have the passage open in front of you, John 19, from verse 16 to 30. We're going to look at two principles. Number one, what's gone wrong between us and God. Second principle, what has God done to put it right? But let me just go down one side road. The author of John's Gospel, there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This morning we're looking at John's Gospel. The author of John's Gospel, quite obviously, is John, who was one of the twelve. He was one of the twelve apostles. He was with Jesus from the very beginning to the bitter end. In John chapter 21, verse 20, John identifies himself So he identifies himself in this gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's the same John whom we read about in chapter 19, verse 26. Notice, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. So what that means is this is an eyewitness record. John was there. Notice he says in verse 35, the same John, the same John who's standing with Mary, the mother of Jesus, verse 35, he says, but he who saw it, that's John, 
has borne witness. His testimony is sure, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. So what does that mean? That means that what we have in front of us here in John's Gospel is an eyewitness record. He was there from the beginning. He's here at the cross. He was there after the resurrection, at the ascension. He's an eyewitness. What we have here are the source documents of the Christian faith, and the source documents is not philosophy. It's not other people's thinking or writing. No, it's from eyewitnesses. They were witnesses there. They were actually there. John writes here about the life of Christ, the teaching of Christ, the miracles of Christ, the person of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ, because he was there. So you may be new here this morning. And once again, welcome. It's lovely to have you. If you want to know more about Christianity, do not, please, please do not go to Google or the Internet. It's the last place to go. Read John's Gospel. Here's an eyewitness who was there. And you could read through John's Gospel if you read five chapters a day over this Easter weekend. Five chapters today, five tomorrow, Sunday, Monday. By Monday night, you'll read chapter 21, and you'll have a very good idea of what Christianity is. And just one clue. Before you read your five chapters today, make some time. Say, God, if you are real, will you make yourself real to me? And then read your chapters. If you want to know what Christianity is all about, go to the source documents. Don't go to other people's interpretations. Go to the eyewitness records that we have in front of us. All right, principle number one. What's gone wrong between us and God? Well, let's have a look at verse 18 to 22, which I think gets to the heart of the matter. And I'm reading from verse 18. There they crucified him. And with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man says, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. The practice of crucifying people, and it's mentioned there in verse 16 and in verse 18, the practice of crucifying people was invented by the Persians, but it was perfected by the Romans. It was meant to be the most painful, cruel form of torture and death. No one, no one survived the cross. No one. It was the most brutal picture of shame and horror. So brutal was it that no Roman citizen could be crucified without the personal sanction of the emperor. Let me give you just a glimpse of what we read there in verse 18 where John says there they crucified him. Let me quote to you from Dr. Alexander, Mether, Dr. Al, Dr. Alexander Metherill who's a research scientist and medical doctor who taught at the, at the University of California. I quote, The pain was absolutely unbearable. In fact, it was literally beyond words to describe. They had to invent a new word, excruciating. Literally, excruciating means out of the cross. Jesus would have been hoisted onto the crossbar and nails driven through his feet. His nerves would have been crushed and severed. His arms would have been stretched and both shoulders dislocated. 
you can determine that with a simple mathematical equation. Once a person is hanging in a vertical position, his death, which is agonizingly slow, occurs by asphyxiation. To, to inhale and exhale, the person would need to push up on his feet, and in so doing, the nail would tear through the foot and eventually lock up against the tarsal bones. This process would go on and on until complete exhaustion would take over and the person wouldn't be able to push up and breathe anymore. He'd be dead in minutes. End of quote. You know there are people who say that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. There are normally people who want to deny the resurrection and deny the supernatural. Well, if they said that Jesus didn't die on the cross, they speak out of complete ignorance. No one survives the cross. And that's exactly what's happening here in verse 18. Notice verse 19. It was normal custom to put a sign on the cross to say why the person was being crucified, what the reason was, why they were on that cross. Some signs would say murder or robbery or, or revolt. Pilate, probably, despite the people who wanted him dead, wrote exactly what Jesus had claimed. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Obviously, the Jews didn't like that at all, especially when it's printed in all three official languages. But Pilate brushes them off and says, what I have written, I have written. Now, here's my point. The irony of that sign, Jesus the king, is that that's exactly why Jesus was crucified. The Jewish leaders and people didn't want him to be king. Pilate and the Roman authorities certainly didn't want him to be king. And if the truth be known, we don't want him to be king. You see, the answer to the question, what's gone wrong between us and God, is precisely this. Jesus is king. Jesus is God. But we don't want him to be king. We don't want him to interfere in our lives. That's what's gone wrong. Now, perhaps you're sitting here this morning or listening, watching on YouTube, and you say to me, Martin, I'm actually here this morning because my family member twisted my arm. They said they'll take me for lunch afterwards, so I came. I actually don't really believe in God, let alone Jesus. And I would say to you, with respect, you do believe in God. Everyone believes in God. You may suppress that truth, but it's there. You know that there's a purpose and meaning beyond yourself. You have a sixth sense. You have a sense of spirituality. Everybody knows that there's a God. What you are actually saying is not that there's no God. What you are saying is, I don't want God to interfere in my life, which is an entirely different matter. You see, the reason no one wants Jesus as king is because we want to be king. <laughs> we don't want anyone to tell us what to do. I'm the master of my own destiny. I'm the lord of my own life. I don't need... A bit of religion is fine. I'll come to church on Good Friday and Christmas Day, but you know, keep it in its place. Let's not get too fanatical. The bottom line is we don't want God to be king because we want to be king. I want to run my own life in my own way. Since Genesis 3 and the 4, there's this innate desire in every human being, every heart, to be God. The great atheist Bertrand Russell said, I quote, everyone would like to be God if it were possible. Some find it difficult to admit the impossibility. <laughs> you can think of a few. 
Perhaps your boss. Isn't it great to be at church on Friday morning and not at work? John Paul Sartre, the great atheist, said, man is the being whose project is to become God. The Bible is not ashamed to talk about sin. And at the heart of sin is this. I'm the king of my own life. I don't want anyone to tell me what to do. This is my throne. It belongs to me. And no one will push me off center stage. And so when the sign says Jesus is king... What happens? We want to get rid of him. We crucify him. Why? Because we want to be king. Isn't that true? You can talk about God, you can talk about church, you can talk about gay bishops, you can talk about miracles, but don't talk about Christ. Don't talk about Jesus. It's too personal. It's too physical. It's too, it's too bloody. I've been told, please don't start with that fire and brimstone. You see, the cross reminds us. People don't like the cross. They hate the cross because it reminds us that we are guilty, that we are sinners. It reminds us that we are helpless to atone for our own sins. Erwin Lutzer said, the cross shatters all pride and undercuts the, un the ultimate value of self-effort. The cross stands as proof of God's great love and our great ugliness. That's why people hate the cross. Because when you bow the knee, when you bow your knee at the cross, you're effectively saying, it's my sin that put you there. It's my deception. It's my ugliness. It's my self-centeredness that put you there. That is what you are saying when, when, when you bow the knee to King Jesus. When you bow the knee, knee to King Jesus, you say, I no longer want to be king. Will you take your throne in my life? That's what you do when you come to the cross. No wonder they crucified him. People are offended by the cross. Preachers grossly, within Christendom, preachers grossly misrepresent the gospel when they say, come to Jesus and he will solve all your problems. Come to Jesus, he will make you healthy or wealthy. Come to Jesus and you will be more successful. You will have a better self-image. You will be highly motivated. My dear friends, that is pathetic. What we're talking about here is not, here in John 19, we are not talking about a self-improvement program. Lose 5 kg, join a gym, eat better, try God. <laughs> that is a self-improvement program. No, my dear friends, we are imposters sitting on God's throne. And we don't want him to take his rightful place. You see, the only way Christ can sit on the throne in your life, he is on the throne because he is king. We don't make him king, he is king. But the only way he can sit on the throne in your life is if you get off the throne. If you don't get off the throne, he can't sit on the throne in your life. There are two kinds of facts. Think about this. There are two kinds of facts. Facts that you don't need to do anything about and facts that, that you do. So, for instance, if I said to you, Gauteng is the economic hub of South Africa, that's a fact you don't need to do anything about. We all know that, that that's true. But if I say to you, there's a bomb in this room and it's going to go off in two minutes' time, you've got to do something. When the Bible says Jesus is king, that's a fact of the bomb variety. 
You have to act upon it. Why do you say? Because whether you believe it or not, whether you like it or not, at the end of our lives, you will meet God. You may not believe in God, you may not like it, but you will meet God. And you will not only meet him as king, you will meet him as judge. Perhaps you'll ask the question, why didn't you believe in my son? I sent him to die for you. Why didn't you believe in him? Perhaps he'll say, what are you doing here unforgiven? I sent Jesus to forgive you. What are you doing here unforgiven? Or perhaps he'll say to you, you've said to me all your life, I don't need you, I don't want you, get out of my life. I respect your wishes. And I'll be out of your life for all eternity. You can't be part of his kingdom if Jesus isn't your king. If you won't accept him as king, you can't be part of his kingdom. You may call yourself a Christian. In the census, you may take Christian. But if you have not accepted Jesus as king, you can't be part of his kingdom. It's not complicated. So that's the first question. What's gone wrong between God and us? Second question. Listen carefully to the words. What has God done to put it right? What has God done to put it right? And this is where the Christian message is absolutely unique. You won't find it anywhere else. You know, people often say, you've heard them and perhaps you've said it. All religions are basically the same. My dear friends, you only have to have a cursory study of two religions and you will find that there are significant differences. Of course, they're the same people who say all Chinese look the same. And that's because they've never met a Chinese person. If you examine every other major, major religion, not one of them ever asks the question, what has God done to put things right? Not one. Because they all ask the question, it's the question of religion. What must we do to get right with God? That's religion. It's my effort. It's DIY. It's do it yourself. Judaism says obey the Ten Commandments. Hinduism says live a good life now and hopefully the next life you will be better. Islam has the five pillars of Islam. Buddhism has the eightfold path. It is religion. It's what we do to try and reach God which is why I've never met anyone from another religion who is absolutely sure that they're going to heaven. Why? Because they're not sure that they've been good enough. Christianity is different. It's the opposite, the exact opposite. It says there's absolutely nothing you can do to get right with God. None of your good works, none of your religion, none of giving to charity, none of your church church attendance, your seed money, your faith, your fasting, will get you one millimeter closer to God. Remember Jesus said, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Question, what is the qualification to get rest? The answer is you must be weary and heavy laden. If you are not weary and heavy laden of your sin, of your guilt, of your shame, there is no rest. The qualification for rest 
at Jesus' ultimate rest is that you need to be weary and heavy laden. So if you say to God, I'm fine, I'm good. Well, Jesus says, I can't help you. Remember, Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a doctor, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So imagine if I made an appointment with my doctor, Dr. Moodley, who's here up at HealthWorks. And I made the appointment, and uh, he brought me in, and he said, take a seat, Mr. Morrison, how can I help you? And I said, doctor, I'm absolutely perfect. I have no... I have no illness, no disease, no aches and pains, despite my advanced age. Of course, Dr. Moodley will say, Mr. Morrison, what on earth are you doing here? Why are you wasting my time? Well, that's what Jesus says if you come to him and say, Lord, I'm good. I'm very good. I go to church, I take communion, I read the Bible. I'm even nice to Royden, and that's hard. I give to charity. I'm good. I'm fine. And of course Jesus would say, well, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with you. I can't help you. You see, he can only help us when we're spiritually sick. He can only help us when we realize we are terminal. Let me speak to someone here this morning who may be here the first time and uh, you're new to the Christian faith and perhaps you don't personally know Jesus. There's only one real prayer that Jesus will hear from you and answer. In his mercy, he answers other prayers. I know that. But there's only one real prayer that he will hear and answer. And that prayer comes from an old hymn, a verse from a hymn. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Naked come to you for dress, helpless come to you for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. That's the only prayer he's really going to hear and answer. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. All right, back to our question. What has God done to put it right? Let's quickly, in just a couple of minutes, look at a fascinating angle in this passage which I want you to notice how Jesus, and John tells us how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament prophecies. You may not know that there are over 300 prophecies made about Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension in the Old Testament. Many of them, most of them, between 700 years and 1,000 years before the birth of Christ. Notice verse 18, chapter 19, verse 18. There they crucified him. And with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. And Isaiah, writing 700 years before the birth of Christ, says, Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Well, notice there, verse 18, there's one transgressor on his right and one on his left. Notice verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier. So there are four parts to his, to, his, uh, to his dress. It's his sandals, it's his belt, it's his clothes, it's his headdress. And they divided between them, four soldiers, four parts. And then we read, end of verse 23, and also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless 
woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That comes from Psalm 22, verse 18, written by David a thousand years before the birth of Christ. These Roman soldiers knew, didn't know Romans, didn't know Psalm 22. <laughs> they divide his clothes, and then they cast lots for the tunic, which was seamless. It's extraordinary. Notice verse 28. Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Turn with me just quickly, just quickly, Psalm 22. This is a psalm of David. It's a messianic psalm. It gives us six or eight or ten prophecies of the death of Christ in graphic detail. Notice how the death of Christ fulfills Psalm 22, verse 1. Jesus actually uses these words from verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Verse 4, uh, sorry, verse 6 uh, notice there verse 6 um, but I am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people all who see me mock me they make mouths at me they wag their heads he trusts in the Lord let him deliver him let him rescue him for he delights in him isn't that what happened with the crowds walking past the cross of Christ have a look at verse 14 I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a, like a pot's herd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. I'm thirsty. You lay me in the dust of death. My, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. David writes that a thousand years before the birth of Christ, before crucifixion was invented by the Persians. He writes what he doesn't understand, which is the death of Christ. They pierce his hands and his feet. I count all my bones. They stare at me and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Extraordinary. Psalm 69, verse 1, And for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. And verse 28, Jesus says, I thirst. Verse 29, they place sour wine on a sponge and put it on his lips. Back to John 19. Notice there verse 29. We read about a hyssop branch. Notice that verse 29. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. So a sponge is taken, it's dipped into the sour wine, there's a jar of sour wine, and they hold it to Jesus' mouth with a hyssop branch. Question, what is a hyssop branch? What is a hyssop tree? Why on earth does John even, why, why does he even mention that? Well, because John is telling us something about Jesus, something extraordinary from the Old Testament. There's significance to the hyssop tree. King David, after committing perjury, adultery, murder, confesses in his prayer, Psalm 51, purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. 
But still we ask, what is a hyssop tree? Wikipedia, don't look now. Wikipedia won't help you. <laughs> It'll tell you it's a tree with purple flowers. No, in Exodus 12, you remember, the nation of Israel were in slavery for 400 years. They cried to God. God answers them, sends a messenger, Moses, to rescue them. And then God sends nine plagues to warn Egypt that they may repent and turn to God. They don't repent. God says the tenth plague is that the firstborn son will die, both human and animal. The only antidote is if you take a one-year-old male lamb without defect and slaughter that lamb at twilight and then take the blood of the lamb and put it on the lintels and the door frames and the doorposts. And when the angel of death comes over Egypt... There will be death in every household, both human and animal. But where he sees the blood, there will be life. That's why it was called the Passover. Because of the blood of the Passover lamb. And in Exodus 12, 22, you can look it up afterwards, the branch, the brush that was used to put the blood on the lintels and the door frames was a hyssop branch. So when John tells us that they dipped a hyssop branch to put the sour wine on the lips of Jesus, we are reminded that Jesus is the Passover lamb. It is Passover. That's when he died, at Passover. And at twilight, instead of sacrificing the one-year-old male lamb without defect, Jesus is sacrificed. The firstborn son is sacrificed. God takes his own medicine. Sin must be punished. Evil and injustice, there must be justice. Wrath must be quenched. God takes his own punishment. And God dies on the cross in the form of his son to quench the wrath of God. So the firstborn son dies. Jesus is the firstborn son. He dies so that we may live. The ultimate Passover lamb dies so that we don't have to face the wrath of God. Imagine that. My dear friends, we will never face, if you have trusted in Christ, you will never face the wrath of God. Never. Why? Because Jesus quenched. He drank every last drop. Many religions still have sacrifices. Some of them have blood sacrifices. Christianity has no sacrifice. None. Why? We don't have an altar here. Why? What do you do on altars? You sacrifice. We don't need an altar here. Why? Because Christ was the final, perfect, not to be repeated sacrifice for all sin, past, present, future. Why no more sac sacrifices? Because of verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Just notice there, he doesn't say that the spirit, his spirit was taken from him. No, he gave it up voluntarily, willingly. Notice he didn't say, I am finished. No, he said, it is finished. It's actually a Greek word, tetelestai, which is an economic word. It's a word you would use when you've paid off a certain debt. So let's say you've got a mortgage bond. 
You've, you've got to make 240 monthly payments. Yo, yo, yo. When you pay your last payment, you will say, Tetelestai. It is finished. It's paid off. That's what Jesus is saying. So it's not a cry of despair. It's not a cry of defeat. It's, it's a cry of victory. It's a cry of completion. Remember the five cups at Passover. And the last cup was a cup of wrath. And he drank every last drop. My dear friends, I, I'm not so keen on the process of dying. But I don't have to fear death. Because Jesus has drunk the last drop. And those who trust in Jesus will never, never, never face the wrath of God. That is why Good Friday is called good. Without Good Friday, we are damned. We are lost. Let me close. We've seen the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. That is the heart of sin, the essence of sin. The essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. In the movie, The Last Emperor, a young child is anointed as the last emperor of China. And he lives a life of luxury. He has a thousand slaves at his disposal, at his command. And his brother asks him, what do you do when you do wrong? What happens when you do wrong? And he says, well, when I do wrong, someone else gets punished. And to prove his point, he knocks over this precious antique Chinese porcelain jar that smashes into a million pieces on the floor. And instantly they take a servant outside and beat him. That's the movie. In John 19, Jesus reverses that pattern. When the servant sins, the king is punished. You see that? Grace is a gift. <laughs> it's absolutely free for you and me. But someone had to pay for it. And that was Jesus on the cross. So you may ask the question, how do I receive God's forgiveness? How do I receive God's grace? The answer is you can't work for it. You can't earn it. You can't make it up yourself. You can't grow the hero inside. You ask for it. In your sin and brokenness, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. Let's pray. The way to ask for God's grace is in words, in prayer. And perhaps this morning as you've been sitting here, as we've been singing and praying and reading God's word, you have felt God the Holy Spirit press in upon your heart, upon your mind. Today's the day you need to get right with God. No more ducking and diving. If you want to get right with God, you do it through prayer. And I'm going to pray a prayer that you may want to repeat in your mind. It's very personal. It's between you and God. You may not be ready to pray this prayer, and we understand that. But if God has been dealing with you this morning, as we've been looking at God's word, perhaps today's the day to, to turn to God and ask for mercy. 
So here's a prayer you may want to repeat in your mind. I'm going to say it slowly so that you can repeat those very words to become a child of God. Here's the prayer. Lord Jesus, I don't understand it all, but I know that I need you. I know that Christ died on the cross for my sin. Will you rescue me? Will you make me a Christian? Will you help me to live under your leadership? And Father, we thank you that when we turn to you with all our questions, with all our brokenness, with all the ugliness, but call on you for mercy that you hear and you answer. Will you work amongst us today, this Good Friday, 2022? Amen.